This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number six of the series entitled The Son, of course referring to Christ as the Son of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you will join us, will you just switch off for a time and we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1 and then turn to chapter 6 and read from verse 12 to the end. I'll repeat that. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and then chapter 6 verse 12 to the end. I want to use this opportunity of saving myself writing many letters so that those who receive this tape recording presently will get an answer to the question that's so often raised concerning my health. I had this morning, was most of the morning at the hospital and I had a very good overhaul and uh, the general pronouncement was that I was making favourable progress uh, but when I said would I have to keep on with the variety of tablets and medicine that were given me they said that it was not curing me it was only keeping it at bay so uh, I felt that it would be perhaps an easy way of telling many of you friends if you don't mind me using this vehicle but the very fact that after being in the hospital this morning for two hours I'm able to stand here and I hope to carry this witness through I think is something that I'm at least grateful for and I hope you will be too. Well now our subject is not myself but someone infinitely greater the Son of God and the passage we had read together 1 Timothy chapter 1 balances one chapter, Timothy 6. You will remember, I'll just refresh your memory if you look back. It says in the first chapter, verse 17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. When we get through to the sixth chapter, we have a reference back to some of those same things. Many years ago I made a list of the attributes of God as far as I was able to dig them out from the scripture. And then I went through the scriptures again and I found practically every attribute of God as God is ascribed to Christ and I found, I thought, with one exception, invisibility. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the express image of his person. And then I found I was wrong. It's good to find yourself out, isn't it? Because in this chapter 6, when it says, verse 15, or verse 14, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is the appearing of our Saviour. So he's speaking now, not of God in the infinite sense, quite outside our comprehension, but of our Saviour. And he says, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's no need for me to turn you to the book of the Revelation, 
when it distinctly speaks of the coming of Christ, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Then it says, who only hath immortality, a different word from the word immortal in chapter 1. Just this difference. But God himself is not immortal in our sense of the word because he's never been subjected to death at all. But the word here used means not subjected to death anymore. This could be used of a person who was dead and buried and raised again. Immortal. And then it goes on to say, dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen, nor can see. Now up to now we've had no disagreement that the, this passage is referring to our Saviour, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet, in himself, he dwells in light which is unapproachable, which no man has seen or can see. The subject before us, of course, is one so vast that it's almost temerity to deal with it. And yet with the scriptures before us, and that person and work so vital to us, whatever mistakes we make, we trust will be forgiven. But we must pursue the teaching of the word. Then if you'll notice in the middle of this epistle, chapter 3, in contrast to invisibility, Verse 15, uh, verse 16, chapter 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So he warned you, without controversy. How much controversy there has been over this question of the person of our Saviour. And when we've finished our controversy, we are merely using arguments that are valid in this life and experience but cannot have any premises based upon that which is utterly beyond us. Without controversy, great is the mystery of God in this. God was manifested in the flesh. Now to say those words is easy. To attempt to comprehend them is beyond us. But here's a point. This is not merely a piece of theology. This is a piece of evangelical truth for here we touch the very centre of all our hopes and in this very epistle we get the word will you look at chapter 2 verse 5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus so the same epistle says he's the man and the same epistle says he dwells in light unapproachable that no man hath seen or can see. And if you can resolve those, well, you're a cleverer person than I am. Because I'm already looking at it. It says, this is a great mystery. But don't let's get puzzled by the mystery. Let's rather have a worshipping heart and say, I don't know how it's all possible. But I'm not saved because I could explain it. I'm saved because I trust it. And I'm saved because I know it must be. For there's a bridge needed to bring me 
the wanderer, the alien, back to God. Now, I cannot ascend. I can't even lift myself off the ground by a couple of feet. Some people can jump that high, but that's not very far, is it, when you think of infinity. Or you can have all sorts of machines that do it. But they're very, very limited. I cannot go up. But the question of questions is, will he come down? Well, aren't we glad we have one book that tells us that's exactly what he's done? And he's put into the scriptures figures and types of that condescending love that stooped to die the just for the unjust that he might bring us back, bring us to God. So, let's approach it in that attitude of mind and where we are not able fully to explain or to understand, we'll still face what is written and let it do its wondrous work with us. I would like you to turn for a moment to another scripture, that is the Epistle to the Hebrews. All this is known to you so well, but sometimes it's necessary to remind ourselves of one or two features. Hebrews chapter 1. We have already observed in verse 2 that when it says, in these last days he has spoken unto us by his Son. The his is not there, it's in italics. And by Son is not English. The Greek preposition en is translated in, oh I don't know how many times, that's its normal meaning. But then you may say to me, in Son doesn't seem to be very lucid. Well that's simply because we are not Hebrews. If we spoke Hebrew, and if we could read the Hebrew Bible, we read in the Old Testament that God spoke in God Almighty, that God spoke in Jehovah. Now, I'm not explaining it, friends. I'm only telling you. You see? It's in your Bible, if you only could translate it correctly. So, God at last, instead of speaking to other prophets, he came in some way himself, in Son. And then, it goes on to give the glory of his person, but presently, it says, verse 6, and again, and that word again, you'll see, I think, the margin, or some margins give you, when he again bringeth the first begotten into the world, that's in the future, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. Well, that's contrary to the whole tenor of scripture. For angels or men to worship other than God. You can't find any passage where it's absolutely told you that it's right for us or angels to worship. And the angels are very sensitive to it. For when John fell at the feet of an angel, he said, see thou do it not, worship God. And then in this same chapter, it says in verse 10, And our Lord in the beginning hath laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Well, if that doesn't say he's the creator, in what way can it be said? And then I, to get to the last passage, in the chapter 2, it says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death 
he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So, in just the range of a few verses, he's the express image, he's the creator, he's addressed by, in the first chapter, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Creation is the work of his hands. He became flesh and blood, and he even stooped to death. Now, if that's not a mystery, what is? But don't you see, it's not merely to tangle us up with a mystery. It's to reveal that God has been able to solve it. And only God could. If we had a summit conference of all the sinners of earth, they would have no right to sit and tell God how he could redeem them. For they were all lawbreakers and they've got not a word to say. If it never comes from God, it'll never come from anyone. But that's the very glory of the book. From the beginning right to the end, there's one person that is envisaged in type and shadow and prophecy, in gospel, in epistle and in revelation. And you know who it is, don't you? He is called the Son. So shall we now turn back? You will have this card where the outline of the study is. Shall we turn back to the passage where this was foreshadowed in Isaiah chapter 7? Isaiah chapter 7. Some of these prophets not merely had to speak but they had to live. Their children were not allowed to be called after auntie so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. Some of them had extraordinary names. I don't know whether I could pronounce one properly. Maya Shala Hashpats. Fancy calling that boy to dinner. But it was given because they were living witnesses to certain lines of truth. So we have in chapter 7 a call to Ahaz, chapter 10. Ahaz, if you go into the Old Testament history concerning him, which is at your disposal, just look up the passages, and evidently made up his mind what he was going to do. And he was going to form an affinity with an outside power. And so it says here, Moreover the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height of that. And oh, how humble this man, this Ahaz was. Oh, he said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. What a hypocrite. Because the history, which is written in the book of Kings, tells you that he's already made up his mind, so he pretended he didn't even ask for a sign. God says you're going to get one anyhow. He said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Will ye weary my God? That was God's estimate of, Oh, I don't like to tempt the Lord my God. See? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, whether you want it or not. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the birth of Christ, as recorded in Matthew, was no sign to Ahaz. For poor Ahaz had been dead and buried centuries. 
But in his, his own day, this was going to happen. But the point is, that the word virgin is not the translation of the word that is used. It's a word that means a maiden, whatever a condition might be. The virgin birth wasn't repeated all over again. It was unique, once only, in the, in the birth of Christ. But this young woman that was evidently well known to Ahaz and the court should at a certain moment bear a son and he should be given a certain name. And it was the giving him of the name that brings him into line with some of the others. You notice in um, chapter 8, Moreover the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great wrong, and write in it with a pen's name concerning Maya Shallow Hashbaz. That was one of the other children he'd got. Now it doesn't say he was born of a virgin, but he was one of Isaiah's children. And here's another one that's born. We don't know his parentage, but it was someone that he could point to, and assure as the time came, that child was given this name. Chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, this child that had been promised, unto us a son is given. Now that's got a poetic element about it. But poetry in the Hebrew language is not really just for a jingle of rhyme. It's for a jingle of reason. Not only a son, not only a child born as he was, but already anticipating a son to be given. Because, you see, Christ is not only the begotten son. He's the one that the Father spared not and gave. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? So it says here, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Well, that's where we are, isn't it? We've already confessed that the more we look into this person and his wondrous work, oh, I said it without thinking, wondrous work, the more wonderful it becomes. It'll be a sad day for a congregation of God's people who believe this word whenever they lose the sense of wonder. I always remember many, many years ago with my children when they were little, oh, that must be a long time ago now, must not it? Sitting in a chapel at a seaside place and hearing the preacher speak about wonder. A little child is taught to say, how I wonder what you are. When we cease to wonder, we shall cease to worship. For worship is recognising something beyond the ability of man just to keep in the fetters of human experience and reason. So it says, his name should be called Wonderful. Counselor the mighty God. It makes no, apparently doesn't stop to explain anything. A child is born. A child is born. No possibility of translating the word child anything else. No possibility of making the word born mean anything else. And yet this man, who being a Jew, 
would stand for the unity of the Godhead and die for it if needs be, says this child shall be called the mighty God. Another difficulty is the everlasting Father. Well, the words are in a different order. This is not confusing the Father and the Son. For the word everlasting Father really is the Father of the ages. As you know, the word Father is used in the Scriptures for uh, one who originates. The Father of all those who handle the harp and the organ. The Father of those who work in metals. The Father of those who keep flocks and herds. And I believe that one of the uh, ways of speaking of what we call measles in certain parts of the East is to call it the father of red ones. You see? The father of the ages and the prince of peace. So we come back again to chapter 7. And we say, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, in that one name is wrapped up all that I've just read in chapter 9. God with us. And that occurs later on in the 8th chapter, I think, where it's so translated. Yes, verse 10. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For Emmanuel, if you were reading the Hebrew, that's all. Emmanuel. Because Emmanuel means God. With us. So here we are. This is the point that we can come in. God with us. Going right back to the beginning of time, so far as the Bible is concerned. The desire of Job that there should be a dazed man who could put his hand upon us both. Both. No angel could do that. An angel couldn't represent a man and an angel couldn't represent God. So, in all my innocency and utter inability to go further, I say, but what man couldn't do and what an angel couldn't do, God has done. And if I'm going to wait until I can explain it to all sorts of people who make objections, I shall go on until the day of doom. But I'd rather take God's word for it and trust in the statement that it says one day I shall know even as I know. Perhaps I'll, perhaps I'll understand it a bit better then too and it'll be worth the knowing. But see, don't let's li- miss the wonder of it. Here is God already foreshadowing in this prophecy the wonderful provision that he intended to make. That God was going to be manifest in the flesh. That the one whose fingers clothed the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth was going to take upon him flesh and blood and die. But blessed be God, rise again to die no more. Who only hath immortality. If ever you have the idea of reaching immortality, friends, You'll have to know this person, for he's the only one who's got it. And you can only get it by being joined together with him. You don't turn round to God and say, I've got an immortal soul, so you can do what you like with me. You haven't. 
you haven't the soul that's in it, it should die. And everlasting life is equated with immortality in the epistle to the Romans. Everlasting life is immortality. But immortality goes further than everlasting life in the sense that it indicates it has to do with resurrection, when this mortal shall put on immortality, and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Well now we take it a stage further and look at one or two other passages. He is with us, not merely in this high doctrinal sense, but he's with us in all our weakness, in all the moments of our temptation, in all our need. Take, for instance, the passage that we have in Matthew. There are two of them that I think we might look at. Matthew chapter 2. You know the plot to destroy him by Herod? was frustrated by a command of God. Verse 14, chapter 2, When he arose, he took the young child and the mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, notice this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son, Well, if you look at that passage which occurs in the Old Testament, it's dealing with the actual calling of Israel out of Egypt that was passed already. Oh yes, said the Lord, but every experience that my people go through, they'll find they are walking with him. I don't know whether we should be right to say that everything that we have to meet in all our frailty we can look to him and say, Lord, you have passed this pathway too. Help thou me. But there are many places where it's actually stated. So, shall we glimpse a little bit further in chapter 4? Verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Tempted of the devil. This is where he's going right back to the first Adam. And the first Adam was tempted of the devil because we are told in the New Testament that that old serpent is the devil and Satan. The first Adam was surrounded by plenty in a garden of fruit trees. He didn't have to work even by the sweat of his brow. No trade union bothers, no bothers with works or anything. There he was. And he failed. Now the Son of God was taken into a wilderness. And instead of having plenty, he was surrounded by wild beasts, the other passage says, and he was fasting for 40 days. And he doesn't say, but of course, being the Son of God, he didn't feel it. He said he was afterwards a hungered. A hungered. 
And when he was in that condition, the tempter came to him. And the very first temptation that was ever recorded in Scripture is repeated. Something to eat. The temptation to our first parents, and to Eve in the first case, was to eat something forbidden. The second temptation here is to eat something that's legitimate. But you see, you may be tempted to do a right thing from a wrong motive. And so, the hungry son of God, who remember this, worked many mighty miracles, but there's no evidence anywhere that he ever worked a miracle for his own sake. He never saved himself. And he repudiated the temptation and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. Well, then again, you see, we can say, Emmanuel, God, with us. So he knows the temptations. And while I'm speaking about temptations, let's look back again, or further on, shall we, to the passage in Hebrews where it speaks of that, because there's a little need to watch our translation of one verse. Hebrews chapter, just wait a moment till I get it. Yes. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And then the encouragement is given us. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now you see, you can't have a high priest higher than this, because when it says passed into the heavens, it's diakamai, and it means to pass right through the heavens. As it says, the heaven of heavens is there. But we haven't wound up there who is beyond all possibility of remembering or has never passed this way, he has. Again, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? But this is Emmanuel, God with us. Seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as like as we are, yet without sin. Now, I believe the majority of people read that, that although he was tempted to do a lot of wicked things, he didn't commit sin and didn't do it. So, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now that's what he's there for. Grace to help in time of need. You want something more than help in time of need if you've yielded to sin. But don't you know there's a temptation that besets the child of God? Don't you know there were temptations in the wilderness that God allowed in order that they may trust him without knowing the reason why. So it doesn't say here he was tempted in all points 
like as we are, yet he didn't commit sin. What he actually literally says is, sin is accepted. I'm not talking about that. If you want to be redeemed from the consequences of sin, it's the Saviour who died on the cross. But if you want now to be helped with all the things that will press upon you after you're a believer, after you've left the flesh pots of Egypt, and you haven't got to the land of the pomegranates and the grapes, you may many a time sometimes waver. Can I trust God in a wilderness? And then you think of our Saviour who trusted him in the wilderness. And so we got that emphasis, emphasis on temptation. Then another way in which this thought of the Emmanuel aspect of Christ should be considered. Should we look at Mark's Gospel? Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. And... Uh, Verses 27 and 28. Mark's Gospel, 27 and 28. It says, Over his head there was the superscription, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, And he was numbered with the transgressors. So when he died on the cross, the sinless one for the sinner, it was Emmanuel, God with us. He was numbered. But look again at the next record in Luke's Gospel 22, verse 35. Luke's Gospel 22, verse 35. Ah, uh, wait a minute. Truly, the Son of Man goeth. Wait a minute, let me check my references here. Have I got somewhere wrong? 35, wait a minute. Oh, I see it. It's in 37. Verse 35, and he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes latch you anything? They said nothing. Well now you see he's not hanging on a cross dying for sinners. It's before the cross with all its limitations and it's going without and it's trusting God when you couldn't see any evidence of his hand. They said no, we never lacked anything. Well then he said I say unto you but now he that hath a purse let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. So he said, you see, there'll be a change of attitude. But he says, don't lose heart. I have been reckoned among the transgressors that you may know that at the right hand there is one who is not untouched with the feeling of our infirmities, but as in all points tempted, like as we are, sin accepted. Emmanuel, God with us.
Well, then we get, of course, that very important question which comes so many times before us. What think ye of Christ? When our brother Stuart Allen spoke at the September meeting, that was his subject. And he said it was the most vital and important question that could be put to anybody. So what you think of Christ may influence your eternal destiny. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And you know the way in which it was put and the way in which those who opposed him had to shirk the question off. I think if we look at the 22nd chapter of uh, Matthew. Uh, They had been tempting him, you remember. One had come and said, is it lawful to pay tribute? Another one had come and asked some other question. Trying, it says, to catch him in his speech because he said, why tempt ye be ye hypocrites? And our Saviour was just. But before they left him, he said, no, wait a minute, you've been bombarding me with questions. I'll just ask you one. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And of course they glibly said, the son of David. Oh, he said. How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? That's the end of it. I just collapsed. So you read in the last chapter of the book of the Revelation that this son of David is also the root as well as the offspring of David. Can you solve that? I can't. How can a person be the offspring and the root of his own ancestor? Or when Christ is described as he is in Romans, the first chapter, the seed of David, according to the flesh, yet declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. Well, he must have been more than the flesh because no man in his senses would have said Queen Victoria according to the flesh or Abraham Lincoln according to the flesh because that's all he was in this world when he was born. But here was one who, as it says in Philippians, Eupako, originally in the form of God. That's not shape. That's formula. That's constitution exchanged it voluntarily for the form of a slave. And that's not shape, because there's no form, no shape. You don't go to the to the uh, register office and you want a, a servant to come and do the washing for you, and there must be a certain shape. Unless you've got just a narrow door, only a thin person can get through. Well, that's nonsense. I'm only showing you. This word form, shape, was used in Shakespeare's day when King Lear, who had given up his throne and renounced his kingdom because his daughters turned out such bad lot, he said, I'll resume the shape that you think I have cast off forever. 
Well, he wasn't going to develop some bumps or anything. He was going to be a king again. So he voluntarily emptied himself. Again, nobody knows how to explain that. Except, in the very self-same chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul said he had done the same thing in his own small way. Because he says, this word made himself of no reputation is the word which gives us the word kenosis, empty. And then presently Paul says of himself in his own way, he said, if I be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. So Christ was the great drink offering as well as all the other offerings that we need to satisfy the type of shadow. Well, what can we do with such passages as this? But ventilate them, open the book, read a few verses, and then I think, why Bow in the presence of God and acknowledge that great is the mystery of godliness, but for our sakes, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.